we would have these, it was like an all-inclusive fishing lodge and it was decently expensive to go fishing there, if I'm being honest. So people that would come fishing there had to be successful in some way, shape or form. And then I'm locked on a boat with them, which is not big. It's about a 30 foot boat for 12 hour days, three days in a row. So I just learned to ask very open-ended questions with these millionaires. And I would just ask them, Hey, I'm at the time I was 22, 23. Hey, if you could go back and you were 22, 23, what would you do? You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to Passive Wealth Principles. I am your host, Jake Harris. Uh, I have an exciting episode. Dr. Nate Smith, pharmacist turned real estate investor. He now has a couple hundred units uh, that he owns, uh, 25, maybe $30 million worth of a portfolio. And he's taken that from a small town, Eclair, Wisconsin, being a pharmacist, and then investing into in house hacking to some student housing and to now some apartments. And he's actually been able to free himself up to where he's no longer working as a medical professional and just truly being a real estate investor. And he's financially free is incredibly exciting. And actually wait for the interesting story that he talks about, about some oil and gas and some fracking that some land that he owned that was going to be worth maybe $10 million, maybe less. But as he dives into that story, it's super interesting. And he's also going to take you on the path, if you're a medical professional, his steps that he did to achieve financial freedom in this episode with Dr. Nate Smith. Hey, Nate, I'm glad to have you on Passive Wealth Principles podcast show. And sometimes, so it was like, Nate Smith. I was like, I actually can say that. Sometimes I have some people's name where I'm just like, uh, how do you say your name? And they're like, <laughs> how would you pronounce it? And I was like, I don't know. I wasn't, I didn't, you know, learn phonics when I was a kid. I, I just kind of, if I can hear it, I can re- repeat it sometimes unless it's a weird, weird, uh, thing. So love to hear, hear your kind of backstory. 
you know, where you're located now. And then, you know, you have been building up this rental portfolio and this, this asset management that you've kind of been building, but, uh, in your awards, go ahead and, and give us, uh, some, some backstory for the audience to hear a little bit more, uh, about yourself and, you know, from birth until death, or maybe at least <laughs> until today. Yeah, sounds good. I can run through that. But thanks for having me on. And yeah, I, I got blessed with a simple name. So that, that's good. I'm I'm excited about that. It's It's been nice that uh, it's really fun to like, say like you're on like a credit card call with like a representative and they're like, what's your last name? And you say it and they don't catch it. They're like, can you spell that for me? And as you get to about the T in Smith, they're like, oh, it's Smith. I'm like, yes, it's Smith. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I come from a really small town in Wisconsin, uh, probably only like an hour, hour and a half outside Minneapolis, St. Paul, but into Wisconsin. Town is about 400 people, so super small. I lived on a gravel road. The whole small town experience. I went uh, from that growing up. I went down to the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire, which is a smaller state school. Played a little college hockey. Got a business degree with a chemistry degree on that as well. Then I went uh, to Madison, UW-Madison, the Badgers there. I got my PharmD and was a practicing pharmacist for about eight years. Kind of that whole time, uh, my real estate journey kind of started while I was in school at Madison. So about the last 10 years or so, while I was a pharmacist, building that on the outside, doing some other preneurs, um, started like a restaurant event center, did some frac sand mine development type stuff, started a property management company along the way, and then sold out of that. But yeah, the bedrock's always just been rental real estate. You know, it's kind of boring. Uh, it was a good decade to do it, honestly. Uh, unsure what the next one's going to look like. But yeah, we we sit on about you know 200 units across all the LLCs right now. Uh, my main focus right now is post-1970s built multifamily in kind of some Midwest markets. And I live in Denver, Colorado. I moved out here about three years ago. So kind of managed from a distance, kind of had to learn how to be an asset manager versus like a COO, boots on the ground guy. I live out here with my beautiful wife, Kate, and we have a one-year-old son, William. Just loving life, loving skiing and being outdoors. I love that. There's so many different things that you just mentioned on. And, and as like, you know, I see this transition and I see a lot of people that are, are pharmacists or medical professionals or high income earners that want to get into real estate or want to get into kind of a passive wealth, you know, you know, uh, situation. And so I'd love if you could kind of dive into like how that genesis of that started for you. And you will we'll also put like a little note on the, the fracking, the sand mine thing. I definitely want to come back to that is like how that came about. And maybe that's from the chemistry background, but like, you know, Hey, you're making money as a pharmacist. How do you go in to start, you know, uh, getting 200 doors? You don't start with 200 doors. And what is that process from Midwest to now to Denver, kind of a primary city, you know, taking that, that grassroots kind of component and moving up from there? Yeah, absolutely. So it all started, honestly, just pretty similar story to a lot of people. I talked my dad into purchasing a house when I was going to school, grad school in Madison. So it was just a house hack. That's all it was. I rented out three to four bedrooms a year. I lived in the basement. I renovated it while I was there. 
So pretty typical, honestly, wasn't a great investment, but I learned a lot along the way as far as managing tenants, leases, cash flow, these little things. And I did that for about four years there and that kind of morphed in. And you kind of, you kind of touched on this like medical, like you've seen a lot of people transition or want to transition into those passive wealth uh, avenues. I think just when we're little, and this could be totally misguided, but like, I feel like when we're little, you know, the motivation usually transitions, oh, well, you should be a doctor, you should be an attorney. So we don't know where to channel this, like um, motivation to get ahead or succeed. So the natural avenue is like, well, if you want to get ahead and you want to work hard, go be a doctor. And then maybe we kind of get down that path a little bit and we're like, hey, there's somebody, nobody told me about this other avenue over here. And I think that's kind of what we learn is we're like, we're really motivated people, you know, especially doctors, top one, 2% knowledge wise. So they can do probably what we do. Right. But they just were maybe misguided a little bit. And that's kind of how I felt. I'm like, man, like I kind of want to be over in this lane over here. So I had to kind of you know, switch lanes a little bit during grad school. But the the house hack, getting back to that, evolved into me going back and buying into my my undergrad student rental market. And probably the next 20 purchases over the next five years were student rentals. It's what I knew. I'd just gone to school there. So I knew where kids wanted to live. I knew where all the party houses were or the bars, if you will, just to be honest. I mean, that's kind of what a lot of the state schools in Wisconsin are about is location and being close to class. And then that slowly, you know, evolved into the last probably four or five years is me getting into non-suited rentals and more newer built multifamily. A lot of the stuff I, I bought originally is like 1880s built, so like post-Civil War built houses. So pretty old stuff goes wrong with those houses, things like that. Was there, uh, and I love what you said that as far as about a little bit misguided, because I, I agree with that is I, I, and to be honest, I feel like you've been lied to. I think a lot of people have been lied to that the, the path to success is to go get the college education and get the good corporate job or the high paying income job. And, and really your maybe your hamster wheel is bigger, you know, or shinier. It's the, the BMW, you know, the seven series instead of the three series, you know, it's, it's, but it's just still the same hamster wheel. And so it is, the wool has been pulled over the eyes of a lot of people. So it was like, was it the fact that you were just house hacking that you were like, oh man, I can go do this other thing in other markets? Or was there like a book or did somebody uh, share something with you that caused that kind of aha moment, uh, you know, to kind of start deviating and, and getting on a different lane? Yeah, it's probably a combo. About that time, I, I read Rich Chat Poor Dad right out of probably undergrad. I think a big thing I attributed to is when I was in grad school, I was fortunate enough to work on a fishing boat in Alaska as a deckhand. And this is like a vacationers, like if you go down to Cabo and you want to go catch a sailfish, I would be the guy on that boat, except I'm in Alaska. So we would have these, it was like an all-inclusive fishing lodge. And it was decently expensive to go fishing there, if I'm being honest. So people that would come fishing there had to be successful in some way, shape or form. And then I'm locked on a boat with them, which is not big. It's about a 30 foot boat for 12 hour days, three days in a row. So I just learned to ask very open-ended questions with these, you know, I would just assume they're millionaires. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm correct on that. And I would just ask them, Hey, I'm at the time I was 22, 23. Hey, if you could go back and you were 22, 23, what would you do? And, or what would, 
what industry are you in? And I'd ask them all those questions and they lose you own businesses. And real estate just kept coming up, if I'm being honest. I'm sure I got a lot of book recommendations there, but I just kind of noticed like these, these people had a similar pattern on how they got to where they got to. And I would just kind of drill down on that. Hey, do you do rental properties? Okay. Um, what do you like about them? Well, they cash flow. Oh, that that's interesting. Cash flow. Okay. So that's probably when I first heard about that. It's like, yeah, when your expenses, you know, your income's over your monthly expenses, you get to keep the the little bit that's left. It's like, huh, that makes sense to me. So that's probably where it came from. But yeah, then my, my parents did a great job feeding into that and buying me books. And I, I love ripping through anything passive uh, on the book side, but it just probably more from there, honestly. So concept, passive cash flow. I, I mean, I, I mean the, the fact that you mentioned that is, I think, so important because you don't know what you don't know. And it's to me, same thing. Uh, I, my dad was a police officer. You know, he didn't have, you know, a lot of cash flowing real estate or anything like that. And it wasn't until the same thing, that rich dad, poor dad. Then it was like the first little nugget. I think I was out of the army. I was working at a country club, a golf course and around millionaires. Let's assume most of them are millionaires because they're paying $75,000 initiation, a couple thousand dollar a month, you know, membership dues, doing that same thing, asking those kind of questions. And then it was just like, I'm 23. I want to go take on the world. Like, what do I do? And it was just those little, huge, little nuggets that just kind of stuck out. Again, I was super naive. I didn't know what I even wanted to do, but it was the fact that just someone said, go do that. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. You know, it was just, so yep. was that fishing trip when, by the way, that's awesome. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming it wasn't like a deadliest catch fishing trip, Alaska, but more so <laughs> like leisure. Um, we're going to go catch some salmon on the weekend uh, or middle of the week type of fishing boat. Yeah, exactly. No, no, uh, no clients lost at sea in my three years. So yeah, it's, it's pretty laid back. What a cool experience. And what a great place to connect up with other people. I mean, as, as a country club or obviously, uh, you know, people going to Alaska from all over the world. So you started buying student housing, you know, in your former where you did undergrad, then you've started to transition. When was that transition that you were able to go from, you know, making money as a pharmacist to now, hey, I'm a professional investor? Yeah, it happened kind of in two stages. It happened right around when I was 29. But then honestly, when I moved out to Denver and I was still like living in Eau Claire, Wisconsin at that time, which is a very cheap market. I was kind of moving from flip to flip or, you know, remodel or burr to burr. Didn't have a rental payment, still, you know, good money coming in. I don't know what my cash flow was, five, seven grand a month maybe. So it, for that market, I had made it. Then I ended up following my wife out to Denver and my price point went way up. So I honestly kind of had to go back a little bit into pharmacy to build some more capital, to invest some more. So I feel like I've stepped away twice, but then I stepped away again in the beginning of 2021 uh, and I haven't really looked back since. And I'm 34. So what I, that was again at 32. So probably like 30 to 32, I kind of went back in a little bit. Well, and that's, uh, that's another thing is like, actually most people, medical professionals that come to me that are making high six figures or low seven figures, I tell them not to quit their day job. And that's actually not the advice that they want to hear, you know, cause they're like, no, you don't understand. Like I want to like immediately quit my job cause I'm, I'm burnt out. 
And, you know, the, the reality is, is that, man, you've built up a pretty nice moat to that you can go make high income, you know, uh, you know, amounts of money and also banks and lenders love medical professionals that make high income. So I was like, as a real estate investor, most banks hate me because they're like, you're just going to take all your money and go buy more real estate and leverage it up to them and be like, you're, you're right. That is true. That's what I do. And they're like, then if everything goes bad, or your real estate, we're exposed to the market going bad. And so they're like, I've actually found that like medical professionals get much better loans, get approved a lot faster. There's, you'd be like, so this is a significant advantage to investors that have a day job and then have some track record with that or own their own private practice, or they have a pharmacy or they're, you know, a dental office. And I was just like, man, you need to start milking that for what it's worth start developing systems that allow you to start investing. And then obviously when your passive income has grown significantly to now it covers your, you know, uh, moving to a bigger city, you know, covering more expenses, then you can be like, ah, now I can quit and do that. And obviously you've got to the place where it's less about how much is your W-2 income, but that takes time. Like you said, from 29 to 32, you know, now it's 30 or 34. So, I mean, that could be three years. That could be five years. It depends on like how entrenched your budget is already on your, your basic kind of W2 income. Unfortunately, I know a lot of people that make lots of money, but they spend a lot of money. Their lifestyle is very, very (laughs) expensive. And so their path to financial freedom might take five, seven, eight years within working on a budget. And I bring that back to is like, so what for you, were you able to put in place to create either systems as far as for your investing criteria and or your living and lifestyle that allows you to get to a place where at 32, you're financially free and able to not work a a job anymore? Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. It starts with the personal budget, discipline, living below your means. You got to stave off lifestyle creep, as you you talked about, as long as possible. So I just, I think was like a year and a half ago, I bought a a new vehicle. It was kind of a treat for myself. Before that, I think I was driving like a 2010 Mazda 6. Not sexy, not what you'd think I should be driving or anything like that. So I never had a car payment during those like eight years as that thing was paid for in college. Like I said, I was moving around from flips to burrs, just, hey, I can stay for two months here. Yeah, there's no running water, but I did you get like a lifetime fitness or anytime fitness membership. They have showers there. I'd go work out, shower. Not a glam, like it's probably not what your audience wants to hear, right? But it's just not glamorous is what it is. And you need to figure out how to jam 20 years of work into 10 years. And that's basically what I was doing. I was going and painting and overseeing remodels, then going to the pharmacy to work for eight hours every day, rinse and repeat six, seven days a week, you know, for three, four five years on end. Um, and, you know, I think if you ever talk to somebody that's done that too, and I, I know you have as well, we, we don't regret it at all. It's kind of some of our best times is like you're running with your hair on fire. It's hard to just make people understand that. And then kind of get to get back to the the whole medical thing. That's my first thing I tell people is like, stay in your W-2 just a little longer, like six to 12 months longer than you think you should. And that got me so many loans, like you said, and my ability to pick up overtime. Say I was 
10 grand short coming to closing, but I had 60 days to, to save it up. I could just pick up shifts and make it like very simply. And it, it's incredible. And I don't think, like you said, enough people do it. The other thing that I think um, medical professionals should know about their job that most people just don't have, and we probably take this for granted, but we can tear ourselves out. So you can be a 0.8 nurse or a 0.6 nurse or you know a half-time employee. Usually like if you're an accountant or an engineer, they're going to be like, you want to be half-time? Like, no, that's not going to happen. But you can do that in the medical field. So that was powerful too as I kind of terraced myself off. It's kind of nice to have that. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. My wife is a NICU nurse. She only works four days a month and she does it because she likes her job. You know, she loves caring. She's, you know, like I said, a NICU nurse. And so she, you know, cares for these young babies, but they're, they're happy to have her like you, you know, whatever, uh, you know, we'll accommodate any amount of, you know, hours that you want to put in will work within our, our system, the medical system. They're hiring traveling nurses. You know, that's the other thing. Having an existing medical license, you can also use that. And I actually heard about this these group of these kind of traveling nurses go work for three months together, take assignments, and then they go are off for a month or two. And they're like, we're going to go to Bali for a month. You know, mm -hmm. we made all this money. We didn't spend anything. We worked really hard. Now we're off for a month. So again, it's this lifestyle kind of hack utilizing this high income producing job. Uh, and obviously I, my advice to those traveling nurses, they should be investing into the real estate. They should maybe even be doing some midterm rentals and uh, renting it out to other traveling nurses or something like that. So they can make cash flow and buying more and more uh, real estate, you know, preserving again, that's just because I can't help myself to not <laughs> think that way. Um, but it was like, you know, what an amazing thing that I, I look back and I was like, I wish I could do that. Like, I wish I could do some of those things that the medical professionals, again, it's a moat that you've built up, utilize it for the hard work that you put in, utilize it for the education that you, in the certificates and those other things is like, but obviously at some point time is the most precious commodity that we all, you know, possess. So that takes me to like, what are you doing with your time now? How does your life and how has it transitioned now that you are a professional investor? What 
systems do you have in place? What does your team look like? How are you spending your time now that you're maybe on the the beginning of the other side of it? Yeah, absolutely. So my day, as you try to start off with a strong morning routine, seems like it just sets me up for success. I know it doesn't work for everybody, but you know, I kind of find that's a common theme for entrepreneurs is we need to have some grounding and some structure in our day. I remember I, I struggled when I first stepped away those first six months, it's kind of an identity thing. Like I was a pharmacist, even though I was, I thought I was a real estate investor. Like it's hard stepping away and like structuring your day. Um, so I start off with like an anchored routine in the morning. I usually try to take a meeting or two. Usually I get really fired up. Like out of meetings like this, like just talking to sharp people, that gets me fired up. I handle my, you know, I eat, eat the frog. I, I always say like right away in the morning, whatever I got to do that's, you know, just staring at me in the face. I just get that over with right away in the morning. Honestly, now, like I play with my son and my wife as much as possible in the afternoons. I try, I'd say I lock it in for about six hours a day. Some days, if I got a big project, as you know, you know, that's, it's 12 hour days. It's whatever we need to do to get financing, to do due diligence on time. But uh, if it's not, it's just asset manage it. It's a couple meetings a week with my, with my property managers back in the Midwest. I have a VA in the Philippines. I meet with her once a day. That's really in the morning, about 6 a.m. my time, kind of set her up with what I want her to do. That's kind of what my day looks like. Um, I wish it was a little busier right now. And I think you can kind of speak to that. We kind of chatted about that a little bit. I'm, I'm analyzing deals. They're just not as plentiful um, as I'd like them to be. And I don't have big projects on my plate like I would honestly like to have. I'm kind of waiting, honestly. So let's let's dive into that. What, what is it that you're waiting for? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean... I think, and we talked, I've talked to a couple guys about this is we, we kind of hear, and I, I know we listen to some of the same people that can just wait, just be patient. Like something, you know, I think the end of this year is going to be good and 2024 is going to be good. I, I'm kind of worried about that. Like, I, I don't think I'll wait too long. I think if the deal meets my metrics, I'm going to probably jump on it. Even if I jump a little too early, um, as, as you know, like you, you wrote the book on it, right? Catching knives. So like, you know, about how assets are going to come down and you'll lean in when you feel it's appropriate to, to make it a, a deal or a good investment for you. I just haven't found a deal. I would say like, I think I bought like 30 units last year. I bought most of those in Q1, Q2. And I would honestly say the last deal I found, I closed in May of 2022. I did buy eight units in September, but it was honestly I need to place some 1031 money and I don't think I got a great deal, to be honest. So I'm just waiting for things to meet my metrics, which are usually 150 a door cash flow after stabilization. I'm trying to make things work. I'm a pretty good creative finance guy. So I'm looking at trying to get some seller financing in there. And I think that like sellers are starting to open up to that, but it's still just a little kind of funny right now, a little whipsawing back and forth. Like I'm seeing some stuff go for some really high prices still. And then I'm seeing some stories or heard some stories from investors like, Hey, we're getting pretty good discounts right now. And I just, the market's trying to figure that out right now, I think. And I'll, I'll be happy when the prices come down just a little bit. Yeah. I, I, and I mean, I think you touched on a few of those points, you know, trying to time the market is a fool's errand. You know, it is, uh, you know, obviously, execute it when it makes sense to your business plan. And I also agree with what you've said too, is like, you know, sometimes, you know, the sellers still think it's like 2020 or 2021, you know, like money's falling out of the sky, you know, sellers, 
you know, maybe you're on the opposite end of the spectrum. They think it's 2008, you know, and that's it's the end of the world and it's all falling down. And so there's a pretty big gap between the, the bid and ask spread. So, yep. you know, but to your point, there's deals starting to get done again. Um, I, I know, we, you know, I don't know if I, I talked to you, but somebody previously the the property was listed for 42 million or that was what it was in contract. It fell out. Now they're they're transacting at 35 million. You know, that's a significant discount that all of a sudden, you know, 20% on a stabilized multifamily asset, like that's a good amount of money. It takes a long time to make $7 million in value, or you have to Absolutely. do some really, really good operational improvements. And so to, to go in and bite that. So like, what does your acquisition strategy look like now? So you said you're kind of your day is asset management or you're working with your VA. So like, what are the action items that you're now putting into place to get these new deals? Is this all that you're doing? Do you have a process? Do you have a team or some kind of framework that's kind of vetting out these next levels of deals for your business plan? Yeah. So like mainly my model in the past has been direct to seller. I have a that kind of process built out pretty pretty strongly. I shut it off in September just because I wasn't getting good deal flows or just the people I had were just kicking tires and just wanting too high of prices as you know rates were going crazy. I turned it back on in December. I actually had the highest response rate I think I've ever had. I had like a 2.2% response rate, but all it was was sellers kind of realizing they might have missed it, right? And they wanted those prices. So I didn't get any deals out of that. It was just a bunch of people going, man, I saw that one down the street go a year ago. I want that price. Let's see if this guy will give it to me. So I shut it off again. I think probably April 1st, I'm going to ramp it up and just leave it on again. So like, I think that the time frame is about right for that. I also network with brokers, obviously calling them in my markets. Hey, what are you guys seeing? You got anything coming online? You got any pocket listings? Networking's key for sure. And I, I'm in small enough markets where it's not too many people. Whereas if something's going to move, hopefully I have the connections and they're going to give me a call because they know I'm you know buying units actively in that market. That That's worked well for me right now. Yeah, that's... Um... You know, uh, I see that happening a lot too. People that kind of turn off their their pipeline or their deal flow, and then all of a sudden, you know, because it's it's a lag. It, it takes it is. three months. It takes six months. It takes however long. And where I've seen some other people that have had a lot of success is when other people were maybe not getting the deals, they were amping up their activity. You know, maybe spending a little bit more on Facebook ads or you know, uh, pay-per-clicks or whatever they, their business model was again, because it's, it's a numbers game. You know, like you said, you said your response rate went up to 2.2%. You know, you only need one of those. And, and it, which is interesting because we bought a lot of foreclosures, you know, back in the day is situations can change pretty rapidly in three months, you know, all of a sudden, you know, a business deal goes bad, you know, you have health issues, you have, you know, I don't know, maybe you thought you were going to go to permanent financing. We're talking about this earlier. You'd be like, so you're like, now you're just kicking the can down the road or like, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. I'm out. And, you know, you come much more 
to the reality. So when you talked about creative financing and going directly off market or to the sellers, like what is it? And I'd, I'd love for you to kind of explain that to, to people, especially assuming medical professionals that haven't really done that. So what does in that process of that outreach? And then what is it that the ultimate outcome, or maybe give some examples of what that creative financing looks like for you? Yeah. And that's kind of how I built my portfolio so quick. Cause obviously I think I sit on like 25 million right now. Like I didn't have 5 million. I've never made 5 million in W2 income. So my bread and butter was seller financing. And when I speak of seller financing, I usually use that as an all encompassing term of just getting money from the seller. But there's usually two forms, right? There's like a contract for deed or a land contract, which is when you essentially cut the bank out of the entire transaction, they become the bank. Say they give you a 75, 80, there's no rules. They give you a full 100% LTV loan on the property. That's a land contract. The stuff I was mainly doing in the beginning, it was more like a structure of, I would get 75 to 80% from the bank. And maybe that seller was giving me 10, 15, sometimes 20% on top of that in the second position as a second mortgage. That's how I grew my portfolio. Generally how that happens, like as far as like a first touch, say somebody calls me and I, I can tell, like you, you do your due diligence, hey, this guy's got equity. He doesn't need to sell, but he wants to sell. Uh, equity helps just because they can hold back some money in the deal. If they've just bought it, honestly, they bought it in the last two years, they might even be underwater. That's just not a conversation I'm even going to start with because that they're not in a position to do that. So say a guy has a million dollar property and he wants a high price for it. I might come in and say, hey man, my cash price on this close in two weeks is probably 800 because you just want a high price. But you know what? If you hold 10% back in the deal via seller financing, I'll come up to 900 you know what, if you do 15% seller financing, I'll go to 950. And if you do 20, I think I can get you your price that you want. So there's two things in the deal, right? There's the price and then there's the terms. I don't mind giving on one of those as long as I got the other one to where I want it. And it doesn't matter which one it is. It could be a smoking price and it's at their terms, or it could be their price and it's at my terms. Generally, I can make either one of those work. And I, I know you know your way around that as well. Um, but that's that's kind of my my genius is working on financing and um, around a balance sheet to make sure the asset does still cash flow. Yeah, my returns are, you know, kind of ratcheted up pretty well. So that's a, a great example as far as so have you found more success with one versus the other as far as doing the kind of land contract or as far as the call them the second, the carry back and the and the component? Sure. Yeah, I'd say I mainly I'm the second carry back. However, recently, and I think in the next 24 months, the other might be more common. I, I pulled three land contracts off in 2022. It was just a kind of a perfect storm. It was about this time I sent the sent some some mailers out and Ukraine had just started. So I think there's a little bit of panic there. And people had just, you know, the rates had just started to come up. I think March was their first hike last year. So I had had these contracts or these leads in, I think, April and rates, I think, were in the mid fours. And they used to be three, five for debt kind of all day for what we do. And I told them that they had just seen a duplex go right down the street. I think it was 270000 That's an expensive sale in my market. You know, you're laughing because you're like, I'd love to get a duplex for that. But that's expensive for my market. And I just talked to them. I'm like, I cannot give you that price. That was dumb. That was listed on the MLS. That was 30 offers bid up. I think it was $25,000 over asking price. But I said, hey, if you come to 85% LTV, so I save you know, 5%, say I had to do 20% down, 
or even 25, I say 10, um, you'll come to 85% LTV. You'll lock in 3% over a 30-year term. Yeah, I can reach up and touch 270. I can do that. I'll, I'll make that work. I'll overpay for the property. And I pulled off, it was a husband and wife. They each owned one free and clear. They were about 64, I think. They loved the idea. I think they each get a check for me like $1,023 every month. They love that idea for the next, we, we did a five-year term. For the next five years, they're going to get a little over two grand for me every month. And that, that resonates with people heading into retirement, that monthly income. Um, and then they get a balloon payment at the end of the five years, right? They, they liked it so much that the third one came from them telling their friend about it. And then he reached out to me and I did the exact same thing with him, honestly. So, and I see that going forward. I think like a theme in the next 18 to 24 months is if you can use the least amount of bank financing as possible, I think you might win to be completely honest with you. So I think that's going to be expensive money. So however you can do that, that land contracts, that's a loan, whatever, I think you're going to win and make deals happen. So, man, I love that you, uh, and here's, here's maybe you've, you've experienced this or maybe you haven't yet, but as you go make those seller carry payments, they get to know you. What happens is then you go, you know, the equity grows up, you know, goes up in the asset. You've maybe improved operations and then you pay them off. Here you go. Here's $250,000. There you go. There's your money. Oftentimes those sellers go, well, what am I going to do with this money now? That's exactly right. I just talked about that. Yeah. If you, if you, if you seriously, yeah, I, I, we did, we talked about this on a podcast the other day. I'm like, if you seriously like. 99% of people, you said, you have this million dollar asset. I'm going to give you a million in free and clear or whatever, low LTV. Here's a million dollars in a month. What are you going to do? Ah, 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 ah. They don't know. Like, like, so like in that scenario, that $270,000 duplex, I gave them roughly 40 grand at closing for my 15% down. That probably services any need, whether they wanted to buy a new car or go on some elaborate vacation. That serviced most of the needs and they did it twice, right? We had two duplexes, so they got 80K. They don't know what they're gonna do. The stock market last year was tanking. They didn't wanna take that money and go give it to their finance guy, I promise you. So it's a struggle, a mental struggle. Like you said, they don't know what to do with it. So it, it services that need as well. Hey, let it leave it with me at 4%, 5%. Um, maybe you'll have to go a little higher in this market. But still, that's a great return for them, safe. Um, they're in first position on an asset they already know. But yeah, you hit that on the head. And it's it's really funny that people just don't know what to do with that amount of money. They, they really want, they'd struggle. Well, not only that, the taxes they would have to pay on it, you know, the other burdens that come with it. And oftentimes, you know, I've heard this from other people as well is like, well, now they become a private money lender for you. Hey, I'm going to go buy this other asset. And so then it's, it's maybe 4%, 5%, 6%, you know, some of those other things. And it's the long tail of that. And so the sooner that you can start doing those things, creating and building those relationships. And some of those people, you know, you they do want the million bucks. They want to go buy a, you know, villa in Italy or, you know, whatever. But I was like the vast majority of people. And to be honest with you, I have a whole lot of friends that are sitting on lots of money, all doing exactly what we were talking about earlier. Like, where do I put this? What do I do? I know I'm getting my butt kicked with inflation right now, but I'm just 
looking for a good deal. What do I do? And we get on these calls, we connect up with other people and everybody's kind of still doing the same thing. That's exactly right. Do I, do I invest in gas, oil and gas? Do we invest in the stock market? Do I invest in crypto? Like nothing feels really good right now. And so obviously you have to have a vetted out kind of investment thesis. So I'd like that to us to dive back in. I'd like to dive back into how did you get into fracking and an oil and <laughs> gas play or something like that? So tell me about that, that, uh, you know, investment that you were doing there for a while. Yeah, uh, for sure. We kind of stumbled it. I, at the time I had a partner, we just kind of fell into this. He had purchased, I think it was 160 or 200 acres kind of down by his hometown. And this was like a craze. This was like in 15 or 16, I think. And fracking was just kind of hitting the mainstream. And in order to frack, and you're in Texas, so you're an oil country, you kind of know, maybe know this, but just to explain it to the listeners, frack means fracturing the earth. So you drill down uh, an oil well via high pressure. A lot of times it's like liquid and then materials you puncture out laterally below the surface. So like a well might be three, 400 yards away, but they're getting oil from underneath where I'm at, basically is the strategy. And what happens is, and you can kind of picture this, right, is as you fracture sideways on that well, you then stop the pressure. And then what happens is, is the liquid all comes back out. And as long as you leave the crack, the oil will come back with it. And what you need to have in that crack is very high pressurized things that can hold it open, but they also need to be like perfectly round, meaning you could put a bunch of golf balls. They'll never sit flat against each other, right? There's pores between them because they just can't touch flat. They don't have a flat surface. So the, that is a great example of something you'd want in those cracks so the oil can come out through all the golf balls. And what was found by the oil industry is that consolidated sandstone has the, there's three things that you want. It's turbidity, uh, spirosity, which is how round it is, and then a crush value because it has to be able to stand very, very high amounts of pressure. And for some reason, the consolidated silica sandstone right along the Mississippi River in Minnesota and Wisconsin fit that value very, very well. And we fell into these 200 acres and somebody right before they had sold it had done some, some uh, core drills, like down like 40 feet. And we got the results of those. It said, hey, you're sitting on like nine tons of consolidated sandstone. And during like the buzz, this stuff was going for like a hundred dollars a ton. So we were like, well, that's a lot of money there. So we went through the whole reclamation process getting permitted for a non-metallic mine in hopes of selling it for a 10 X. Honestly, um, what did end up happening is we kind of got out of it for a very, very small profit. Um, we kind of missed it. Oil kind of went down, started 16, 17. I think we sold in 18. I remember right when we started off, I can't remember what we were all into it for, like 500, like not for much money, 500,000. Somebody offered us like 1.1 right away out of the gates. And in hindsight, we probably should have took that right away. But we we were like, well, we're sitting on like $10 million of, you know, frack sand here. And then, you know, the oil well uh, kind of slowed down. It was an awesome process. If you want to really experience some things, why don't you try to go like get a mine permitted in a small town and sit through those town hall meetings and let people just kind of yell at you for a while. That was, that was some thick skin stuff there. So it was a nice process to get into. I just kind of honestly fell into it, but it was using real estate and trying to maximize its value 
you know, at the core of it. And it's what we do every time, you know, so it was interesting. Well, that, that is, uh, incredibly interesting. I don't actually know very much about fracking and oil and gas. I know there's a lot of, but to, to your point is, uh, you know, in Texas, there's the, the, the wildcatters and the oil and gas kind of guys is like 10 X or a hundred X is sometimes possible as far as what they do. And so like, as I was like, here's this real estate deal. And they're like, how much is it going to make? And you're like about 15%, <laughs> you know, 10, 15%. And they're like, boring, boring amount, you know, if, if it doesn't, if it can't do 10 X, you know, or for 50 X or something like that, they're like, yeah, I'm out. They boom and bust all the time. Absolutely. They're worth a hundred million dollars. Now they're worth nothing, you know, worth 150 million now worth nothing. And so it was like, I'm not made up like that. I, I think just the steady Eddie, the 10, 15%, you know, uh, kind of annual return be like, I'm okay. I can figure out some of those things. So, but I do know you can make tremendous amounts of money and lose tremendous amounts of money in the fracking and oil and gas industry. Yep. Absolutely. I'd second that. So I wanted to ask a few questions as we're kind of wrapping up the podcast, you know, these are kind of call them rapid fire questions, but your answers don't have to be rapid fire. So what is the one thing that you have spent money on in the last year that has given you back your most time? Given me back my most time. Probably like business books around like EOS and systems. You know, when I moved out here, like we kind of touched on this, I really had to learn how to be an asset manager. I went from a property manager to an asset manager. And we know those are two very distinct things. I didn't at the time, to be completely honest with you. So investing in how I can hold people a thousand miles away accountable via KPIs, via you know reports that get sent to me, that has probably levered up my time the most, honestly. That's great. I, I agree. That's, I mean, somebody was looking, asking for a, a unicorn, a property manager that can do leasing, that can also run construction and do those other things. And I was like, those are all exclusive of each other. I have yet to find somebody that has all of those skill sets. So you may have to hire three people, but if you have, you understand the lanes of the skill sets and the KPIs that you can assign those to individual people, I think you can actually accomplish that, you know, using more people. So, um, yeah, huge. The next one is what is the book that you have gifted most to other people? You know, it's probably rich dad, poor dad. It's probably, you know, kind of cliche, I, I think he hit on some stuff like he, he just said it in the right way to understand it to like the lay person, the, the sophisticated person. So it's honestly that I, I will caveat this. I've talked to some guys like I tried to listen to his podcast sometimes and I can't like he gets so negative. He, he goes like a totally different direction now. So I, I do want to put that in there. I'm not a huge supporter of his anymore, but he crushed it with that one book. And it, it made a difference in my life. I know that for sure. That is, man, I love that you said that because I've spent some time with Robert Kiyosaki and he's gone much more to the extreme. We can put it at, at, at that. And, uh, but to your point, he is, I think he's probably made more millionaires, freed more people from the matrix, so to speak, with his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, than probably anyone else that I've ever known you know, uh, other than the Bible, like, like you just like blew people's minds where you're just like, wow. So final question is, uh, um, you know, the audience, 
you know, primarily, you know, people looking for passive wealth, looking for, for tips, tricks, you know, things like that. But they're pretty awesome. They're pretty smart. They're pretty savvy. What can they do to help Nate? What can they help you with? Is it deal flow or anything that, you know, you want to support or doing things out there? Where can they find you and connect you on that thing that you're asking for of the audience? Yeah. My only ask is uh, you give me a follow on social media. I, my main platform is Instagram. It's at Dr. Underscore Nate underscore real estate. Uh, that'd be huge. I put out content trying to build my following right now. Obviously, if you're in the Midwest and you got a deal, I'd, I'd love to hear about it, but so would 10 other people. But yeah, just give me a follow. Hopefully you find some value in my, my stuff and keep listening to Jake because you're on the right path there. Guys, I look up to Jake a lot. Awesome. Nate, I just want to take a, a moment to, to you know appreciate and give you some gratitude. How I think uh, it is so awesome that you're actually giving back to others. You've gone through this kind of your own hero's journey as far as the gauntlet of, you know, maybe been misguided. You've been able to see the light. I think a lot of other people have given or read that same book, but they've not been able to get out of their own way and to see someone like you that has been able to just do that and take action. It is Oh, it's awesome. It's awesome to see. I think that is one of the things that most people, you know, if they get even just one nugget from this is to take action, be more like, you know, Dr. Nate, man, like he just took action. <laughs> and even if it's from a small town in the middle of Wisconsin, you can still create some mechanisms to free yourself. And then if you want to live in Denver or, you know, Sri Lanka or Bali or, you know, Ibiza or whatever it is, you can do that if you just simply take action. And I appreciate you for that. And thank you for sharing these insights because of that. I know that you're going to help some people on the long tail of this to understand to free themselves from the matrix. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on, man. Awesome show. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.